best of you. You know, having raised two daughters um, some 20 years ago, I don't know about you, for those of you older folks, we have a bookshelf full of old videos, VHS tapes of Disney movies. This is Cinderella. It's a story of a girl with a bad stepmother and one night she gets visited by a strange woman and she calls herself a fairy godmother and she says, you know, you should go to this party and let me give you the perfect shoe. And it's not a pair of slippers, but if you look at it carefully, it's a pair of heels that the fairy godmother gives to Cinderella. And it, it, it is made out of, of all things, glass. And I don't know about you, but if my daughter wanted to walk out and go to a party wearing glass shoe, I would say absolutely not. That's like a lawsuit waiting to happen, right? Um, but because it's a fairy tale, she meets Prince Charming and they get married. This is Snow White. And she's called Snow White because her skin is supposedly as white as snow, like white. If she were to walk into Living Hope today, some of our Kaiser doctors would talk to her and suggest that she get her blood checked because she may be anemic, right? She ends up running away from home, um, kind of. Um, she lives with, with seven grumpy men. That's weird. But she eventually wins over the, uh, she wins against her queen. This is Mulan. It's a lot of our favorite of the Disney uh, heroines, right? I don't know why. It's the story of a young lady who defies her parents, um, becomes a cross-dresser, meets her captain, who, start having, who starts having weird feelings. I, I think I'm attracted to this person. Fortunately, he discovers that it's not a he, but it's a she, and so uh, they fall in love. He goes uh, to her father and asks for permission. Good job that he needs to have done that, so that's good. And so all these stories, whether it be these three or what, what else do I have? I have Pocahontas, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, and uh, whether it be those or Frozen or high school musical, different characters, different um, protagonists, but all kind of ending the same way. It's a story of a, a woman, a young lady who is flawless in her beauty, and she also happens to be the kindest character in the whole story. And I don't know if that's really realistic, because oftentimes the most beautiful ones are not the kindest, but in the Disney stories they are. She meets a young man who is wealthy as could be, brave, is athletically fit, and has immense influence. And they fall in love, 
even though like with Snow White, they've never even had a conversation. And they live, what? Happily ever after, right? I think it's the worst lesson we can teach our little girls. For them, growing up that there's a Prince Charming, a Troy Bolton, (laughs) a kindred spirit waiting out there who is perfect. And they're just waiting to meet them. And they believe that once they find Mr. Right, and once he finds Miss Right, that they can have a happily ever after life without any conflict, without tension. You know, it's interesting because Les and Leslie Parrott, the, the couple who was coming for that conference, wrote in their book, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, they have seven indicators in which if, if these things are true, there's a better likelihood that you'll have a successful marriage, or if these things are not true, there's a chance that it will not end in success. And the number one thing that they point out in terms of how to predict whether a marriage would be successful is whether a couple has unrealistic expectation. In fact, if a couple goes into a marriage believing that they're not going to fight, it seems um, ironic, but if a couple goes into a marriage believing they're not going to be in conflict, there's a greater likelihood that they'll get a divorce. But if a couple goes into a marriage believing that, that conflict and tension will be a part of their marriage, there's a greater likelihood that they'll succeed. And so perhaps instead of believing that we're going to marry Prince Charming, perhaps it's a better idea to look at your husband and just be realistic and say, well, he's kind of a Homer Simpson, right? Because after a while, ladies, isn't that true? Your husbands all turn into Homer Simpson eventually. When we get into our passage for today, so if you have not done so yet, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. He's talked about sin in chapters 1 through 3, talked about salvation in chapters 4 and 5 and 6, and then he's going to talk about this glorious Christian life in chapter um, 8, but in chapter 7, he pauses, and in case we are under the impression that if we become Christian, we will have a life without conflict, without tension, he pauses and, and gives what I believe is a confessional testimony. So if you found your place in Romans chapter 7, I'm going to read from verses 14 through 25 for us in the ESV version. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. But if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The thing that is abundantly clear is that the writer is talking about a tension. And so I want to answer three questions. First of all, who is the I in the tension? Secondly, what is the tension? And thirdly, how can I flourish in the tension? First of all, what, who is the I in the tension? Mo the first question that most theologians attempt to answer when they tackle this passage, who is Paul talking about? Now, some believe he's talking about his um, non-Christian days. But I don't believe that argument is uh, as, uh, as simple or persuasive because he had been talking in the verb past tense about his non-Christian days. And in verse 14, he switches to present tense. And it is awkward if he's talking about his non-Christian day in the past tense, and then he switches to present tense and still talks about his non-Christian days. I think it's more persuasive and simple and elegant to say that he was talking about his non-Christian days, and in verse 14, now he switches to his condition as a Christian. Now, I want you to know that Paul is not just another Christian, but he is an apostle. He is a high-profile person, and if anything, we would expect him to be a Christian who is more at peace with himself, who is more content. But I want you to look at how he describes his existence in verse 15. I do not understand my own actions. Verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war. Verse 24, wretched man that I am. Paul was a religious person before he became a Christian, so we knew that he had an externally moral life. And so we don't believe that Paul, as a Christian, is now suddenly become a vastly immoral person, but in some ways, he sees himself as someone who is a rod in tension. And I think this goes to a particular thought in that the more mature we are in Christ, the closer we get to Christ, in fact, the more we realize that we are sinners. Leon Morris says in his commentary, it is worth bearing in mind that the great saints throughout the ages do not commonly say how good I am. Rather, they are apt to bewail their sinfulness. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The more mature one is, the more acutely they are aware of how dirty they are. You know, I... I don't know about you, but um, in my home, because I grew up, I mean, I'm, you know, I lived with my wife and two daughters. We had these little round mirrors around the house, right? Ladies, do you have round, little round mirrors, little square, small mirrors in, near your vanity? When I've lived with single men, none of us had little mirrors like that. Um, and these mirrors uh, are designed so that you can get close and you can see your whole face close up. And if you look at your face really close up, you can see all the, the imperfections in your face, do you not? And you can see uh, like your eyebrow and, and the little follicles that are out of where it's supposed to be. Um, and you can see where you're a unibrow, like you're AD and you need to pluck some eyebrow off the center. The guy's like that one, right? Uh, and you, it's, it's when you look at these round mirror, this round mirror, you realize, wow, there's, there's, man, there's something wrong with my face. Um, and, you know, like, 
I'm not a big fan of mirrors because every time I look at it, I'm, I'm realizing, gosh, that's, that's a, not a pretty thing. And I feel bad for my wife that she has to look at it all the time. But you know what's really horrible is these mirrors, you can turn it. I, is that true, ladies? You turn it, and suddenly you see your face twice as, the, as big. And you look at the close-up of your face, and you get close, and you see your nose and all the pores just, just out there. And I, you realize, wow, it's, it's, it's traumatizing, terrifying. The thing is, my face didn't change, but the vision of my face changed. The clearer I got to see my face, the brighter I got to see what's really me. You see, I think what's happening with Paul is this. The closer he got to the radiance of Christ, the glory of Christ, he got to see the imperfections in his character. The things that are going on in his heart, and he realized, boy, my motive, my words, my actions were a lot dirtier than I thought. Woe is me. And so, as Leon Morris said, if you look at the saints of Scripture, they're not the ones who say how good I am, but how wretched I am. What is the tension then for Paul and for maybe all of us? There's a tension going on, and on the one hand, it says in verses 14, 18, and 25, he, Paul takes a part of himself, and it says in verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Verse 18, nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. Verse 25, that with the flesh I serve the law of God. The term in Greek is sarx. It's talking about the physical part of who I am. Uh, and some translations call it unspiritual or sinful nature. It refers to the physical body, uh, oftentimes neutral, sometimes in a negative way. Verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death, uh, soma, which literally just means body. Verse 23, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Uh, and this is talking about a part of my body. So he uses three terms to say this part of me, this part of me is sinful in some way. And in fact, when he writes to the Corinthian church, uh, the Corinthian church was known for being just really bad. Uh, there were a group of people that were suing each other, sleeping with people they shouldn't be sleeping with, uh, having divisions, and, and being really insensitive to those who are in need. And when he writes to them, he calls them people of the flesh. You're carnal. And what is true, even though Paul was a regenerate person, a Christian, and in many ways more mature than any single person here, and this is so important, I want you to, if you're going to fall asleep, fall asleep after this, all right? This is true. What Paul is trying to say to us is this, that even as a Christian, there's a part of him, part of you, that is still temptable, that is still attracted to sin, that still has a taste for sin. Does that make sense? It's the flesh is the place where sin can dwell, can be sold off into sin, has little room for good, uh, a place where evil, evil can squatter and can serve sin from. And that is why in his actions, it, it becomes a habit sometimes, a lifestyle to the point where he says in verse 15, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
we should ask ourselves a question if this is true. And I'm not saying that we should ask ourselves the question, are there times I do good and I do bad? Because that's probably true. But rather this question, are there times where you really want to do good? I mean, in your heart, in your being, I want to do good. I want to be good. But you find yourself not being that person. Uh, let me ask in this way. You, may, you married the man of your dream. He is hot and holy. All right? But there's a part of you that still finds other men more attractive. Right? Is that true? Now, don't, don't, don't nod in agreement, ladies. <laughs> don't be like looking at your husband. And, but is there a part of you that, you know, when you, when you see Brad Pitt on, on the movies, oh yeah, you know. <laughs> you love your children and would give your life for them, right? Most of you would. But is there a part of you that uses them to boast up your own ego? I've had confessions by dads who've told me that when their child had to give up whatever their activity, that they were more concerned of disappointing their parent than being disappointed in themselves. You want your friends to succeed or to do well, but is there a part of you that struggle with being happy for them when they succeed more than you, right? High school students saying, yeah, you know, like SAT, going to a good college, you get accepted. Wow, great, I got in, and your friend gets into a better school. All of a sudden, it's a little hard to be happy for them. You're not dating, your best friend gets the hot guy. Say, oh, you know, I'm so happy for you, you know. You like their status, but with resentment. <laughs> okay, maybe this is true. You've experienced what it feels like to PTL, like praise the Lord, but do you actually enjoy BTS more? <laughs> right? And I've seen some of our home builder wives, um, ladies, um, I, you know, no judgment, but I don't quite understand you. Um, I've, I, I asked my daughter, hey, I know this is a band that's just going crazy. You know, can you play their best song for me? I was trying to listen to it. I, like, I didn't quite understand. I know you love the Lord, but why is it that you sing more to BTS? I don't know. You want to love the marginalized of the world, but do you find it difficult to love by action those who are marginalized near you? Like, you really love the poor people who are really far away in Africa and India. But the people who are hanging around your park, oh gosh, you know, why are they there? Do you understand the, the tension? Is there, a, is there a dichotomy within you, a duality in which part of you really wants to be good, do good, but there's another part that's just not taking action? You know, I have a lot of Disney movies, but if there was a, 
a movie or a book that I'd say uh, maybe illustrates a part of this is a book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Some of you kind of know uh, anecdotally that story, right? Uh, that book was written by a man by the name of Robert Louis Stevenson. He grew up under uh, a Presbyterian parents. So they, he grew up in a religious home and perhaps he was referring autobiographically about Romans chapter 7. And some people speculate that. And it's the story of how this Dr. Uh, Jekyll, you know, is intentioned because when he wants to be civil and respectable, there's a part of him that wants to be bad. And when he wants to be bad, there's a, a, a civil side of him that makes him feel guilty. So he's always in conflict. And so because he doesn't like it, he develops a potion which clarifies and, and separates the two. And he says in the book, with every day I thus drew steadily nearer to the truth that man is not truly one, but truly two. I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness. Even if I could rightly be said of, uh, to be either, it was only because I was radically uh, both, that he was both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And so he drinks this potion, and during the day, he becomes Dr. Jekyll, a very well-respected uh, humanitarian. But at night, Mr. Hyde would come out and would do all sorts of wicked things without any inhibition. What surprises Dr. Jekyll, though, as he wrote his memoir, is that he realizes that Mr. Hyde is tenfold more wicked than he ever could have imagined. I don't know if you realize this, even those of you who've been Christians a long time, even those of you who are elders and deacons and shepherds and Sunday school teachers or pastors, that there's a part of us, the flesh, the soma, uh, the member part of us, that still has a taste for sin. It still enjoys sin. It's still attracted to sin a craving for it. On the other side of who you are, there's another side of this duality, and if the first is called um, the fleshly self, I would call this the inner self, the inner self. Verses 23 and 25 refers to the part of ourselves that is uh, maybe directed by the mind. Verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. If you look at verses 15 through 21, one of the things that he, he keeps saying is that there's a part of him that wants, wants, wants to do good and hates evil. Verse 15, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want. Verse 19, for I do not uh, do the good I want, but evil I do not want. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want. Verse 21, so if so I find it to be law that when I want to do right, do you see it? He desperately, there's a part of him that continues to want to do good. He climaxes it in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God. This is him. I delight, I enjoy, I love the word of God, the law of God. God's message to me, it's like a love letter when I receive it. I, I, I adore it. And then he says, and he, he said earlier that it's my flesh that sin dwells. 
But it says that this part of him that delights in the word of God, in verse 22, in my inner being, in my inner being. The Greek language has eos, anthropos. Anthropos is where we get anthropology of man, a person. Eos is the, the center of it. In the center of who I am, uh, other translation uses uh, perhaps the word um, soul. In the center of who I am, I delight in the law of God. Remember that church that was all messed up, the church at Corinth. Paul writes to them a second letter in 2 Corinthians. He says in chapter 4, verse 16 of 2 Corinthians, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, he says, even to this carnal Christian church, our inner self, eos anthropos, the person who's really inside, is being renewed day by day. So I want you to be encouraged, Christian, if you are struggling with, your in, uh, with the flesh, that, that there's a promise that your inside, your true self, who you are really, the regenerate self is being renewed. Now, how can I thrive in this tension? How can I thrive in this tension? My last point. You know, this is such an important point. Um, I, I want us to realize that this truth and this confession that Paul makes should be both discouraging and encouraging. And uh, it should be discouraging in this way that no matter how long you, become, you, you are a Christian, no matter how much of the Bible you know, no matter how much you serve or give, no matter how much fellowship you have, there will always be, listen, there will always be a part of you, that flesh part of you, that will still crave sin. You know, as a pastor, and I remember in seminary, um, there was this professor that I really respected, and he wrote a commentary that I have in my bookshelf, and he was supposedly going to become the next president of my seminary, and one day we had chapel, and um, all the, it was filled and the professors, um, uh, at, you know, and the president said, you know, can we close the door? And we have news for you. And this particular professor is going to be let go of because of moral failure. And we had time of prayer. And I, I, I used to sit on the second row front, like where you are, uh, of seminary. I love seminary. And the professors uh, sat, and some of them knelt, and they were weeping that their colleagues, a man so well-respected and, and thought of, fell in that way. I, I remember weeping also, and I sought my mentor, my professor, the person that, that kind of mentored me. I sat in Dr. Constable's office, and I asked, Dr. Constable, um, tell me how. And I wasn't asking how did he fall but rather I was asking if someone like him can fall. If someone who knows the Bible even that much loved God so much more than I could ever fall, what's going to prevent me from falling in that way? A part of us should be discouraged because that will always be a part of us. But listen, I, I want us to know that this should be a huge encouragement because we all walk into this room with a limp. We all walk in 
wondering why is it that I still struggle with gossip? Why is it that I still bicker with my husband? Why is it that I still struggle with pornography? Why, still, why do I still get jealous? And I want you to know that though you love God, and you're committed and are, are trying to follow him, there's still a part of who you are that will be attracted to sin. Paul wrestled with it. And every single Christian who's ever come before you have wrestled with it. All the staff, all the leaders in here wrestle with it. And so you're not any different than any of us. And so that is great news. There's a a song, a hymn that a lot of us uh, have grown up with, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's a great, great song, and, and we sing a version of it here at Living Hope. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. It, things sound more spiritual when you use Old English. <laughs> this hymn was written by Robert Ro uh, Robinson, uh, a, a rascal who became a pastor. And he penned these words, understanding the tension that is in his heart because he wrote in one of the stanzas, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I don't know about you, but every time I sing that song, I resonate with those words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I believe Robert Robinson's echoing Paul's words that the inner man in him loved, loved, loved the Lord, the word of God. He knows it's true, but there's a side of him that's prone to wonder. But as we end his confession, Paul's confession in chapter 7, he ends this way. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He says there will be a tension he believes in all of his life, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He writes a letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 5.16 he says, by, But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he reminds us that in the midst of our conflict, in the midst of our tension, it is Jesus Christ who will, will be alongside of us. And we turn to chapter 8. And in two weeks, uh, Pastor Ben Tabal will teach on it. And he says in chapter 8, verse 1, for There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we hold on to the promise of God as he also says in Romans 8, uh, 20, Eight. And we know that those, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, and God is in full control. And so we hold on to his promises. We hold on to Jesus Christ. We set him before us, our sight, in our struggles, in our sins, in our failings, knowing it's not by us trying harder, but as we relate to Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?